Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. Today on Plenary Session, I'm joined by Adam Rodman. He is the host of Bedside Rounds, which is a podcast about the history of medicine. Stay tuned. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. It's the holiday season here at Plenary Session, and that means it's time for our semi-annual pledge drive. That's right. Plenary Session is supported by Patreon backers. You got to go to patreon.com, find Plenary Session. And if you are a planner, if you're a fan of this show, you need to donate to this show to keep it going. Plenary Session has no other support. We don't do advertisements. We keep it pure. And so we are supported by small backers. So if you enjoy this podcast, you should support the show. If you don't enjoy this podcast, you shouldn't support the show. I wouldn't recommend it only if you enjoy the podcast. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Adam Rodman. You may know him as Adam Rodman, host of Bedside Rounds. Adam Rodman is a podcaster. He is an OHSU internal medicine resident graduate, um, and he and I overlapped for about a year, which we were talking about, and we ran into each other several times in that year. Um, he is then went on to bigger and better things. He is a hospitalist at the Bethersville Deaconess Hospital, and his podcast, Bedside Rounds, has ignited the the medical community and has gained uh, a, a, a very devoted and well-deserved uh, following. Adam, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. I am so excited to be here, Vinay. Ah, how are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, there's nothing more more pleasurable than running a podcast and talking to somebody else who runs a podcast. That's really where we get into the weeds, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, we all have the same, uh, the same, uh, the same suffering and the same like obscure, obscurantist information to go over. It's great. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'm sure we'll commiserate about a lot of things. Um, why don't we um, start in the beginning? Um, so, you know, I I knew you a little bit as a resident, and um, you know, I I think your interests at that time were, of course, general internal medicine, hospital medicine, um, and even global global medicine. Uh, I, I I'm so I almost said global oncology because I'm so Im- embroiled in oncology, but you know, global general medicine. Um, and and along the way, when was it? I think it was twenty. It was around the time I met you that you you were just launching bedside rounds yeah a couple uh, maybe the year before you met me i actually launched it and i don't think it really existed i mean back when i launched bedside rounds medical podcasting really wasn't a thing yet right no it wasn't not not like it is today and the podcast didn't really exist in its modern format at the time so i mean i was a well you would appreciate this i was a little bit of a pain in the ass as a resident i was very uh, very <laughs> uh, questioning of everything yes and... I, I i've heard some people i know some people like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah well i mean you know whenever when anybody says something very confidently i i want to know why yes. they feel so confident yes. and it's okay if people express something and they admit that they don't have the strongest <clears throat> knowledge and that yes. you know questioning that and residency is not the greatest way to 
make friends and influence people. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, so you always had that kind of myth-busting streak, that kind of element in your in your interests. Um, but, you know, and I listened to you give a talk on this recently because you, you put it out as a bedside rounds. Um, but, uh, and the way you tell the story is you're listening, you're listening to Radiolab and other podcasts and you thought, why not you take a crack at making a medical history podcast? Yeah, exactly. So I actually originally, I'll, I'll give you some even, because uh, we're both OHSU people, so I'll give you some even more behind the scenes information. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I, I originally envisioned it as, as a radio lab thing, and I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I, again, medical podcasting, this is, this is what, circa like 2014. Definitely not, it, it's a thing in the emergency medicine community, uh, foam, I mean, the term foam only came into existence like a year before. Uh, free so, open access me, uh, medical education, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, that it, it started in the emergency, uh, Mike Cadigan, um, he's Australian, I believe, an Australian emergency medicine intensivist came up with the term. Um, so this is all very new. I didn't have any role models to do it. So, so um, you know, NPR podcasts like Radiolab were my role model. And I, I made a couple podcasts and I actually showed them to a mentor at OHSU. And what they told me, they actually, I, I won't name any names, but they told me that they were deeply concerned that I was spending my free time doing something like this. And this is, Vinay, this is what they recommended that I do instead. They're like, if you have this extra scholarly energy, you should put it into something like uh, starting starting an OHSU-specific medical journal, which is the stupidest idea. <laughs> oh, that's a super stupid. Yeah. yeah, there's no doubt about that. No one is ever going to read that uh, journal if it ever existed. It would be uh, it, it would be it would be in good company in journals that no one reads. Well, that's the, I mean, that's the whole, and not to say that, like, circa 2014, there were not a ton of people listening to my podcast back then, like, 20 to 30 people sure. were listening. Okay. But, like, from an impact perspective, I I mean, I'll, my listenership now, each episode gets about 30,000 listens in uh, 60 days, and I think that's more than most journal articles out there. So Actually, I, I, I would, I know it is most. I mean, I think that that's probably on par with uh, JAMA. Uh, New England Journal probably ekes out about 70K per, per um, you know, for, for a popular article. But yeah, I think, so you're on par with like the second or third biggest medical journal uh, out there, right? Well, it, it shows, I mean, it, to me, like this was a big lesson for me because I went as a resident, especially as an intern, I, I really looked up, you know, for career advice to other people. And it turns out that discouraging somebody from getting into medical podcasting in 2014 was not good career to not good uh, career advice. <laughs> it's like uh, being opposed to the printing press in circa 1300 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, and now uh, I mean, I still make, you know, I still make the podcast. I'm still a, a bit of a pain in the ass. Uh, but this is also my I'm pretty passionate about podcasting as a type of asynchronous medical education. And uh, there's actually research that says that this is what we are doing is the dominant form that internal medicine residents at least use to learn about medicine outside of the hospital right now, which is pretty crazy and pretty exciting. And pretty exciting. Yeah. No, I think that's really well put. I mean, I guess I'm, I struggle to understand, um, you know, because I am somebody who, who in part agrees with these people in, in the sense that, um, you know, a big chunk of my day is spent working on journal articles. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing that a big chunk of my day. And, you know, we're putting out maybe something like 20 to 30 a year. Um, and, and a big chunk of my day is uh, wasted, unfortunately, on that cesspool of a website, Twitter. Um, and, and then, and then a, some chunk of my day is spent thinking about podcasting. And then I'm thinking about some other things that I don't want to tell you about. Uh, no, no, I, I'll tell you about sometime, uh, if you're interested, about how to get the word out there. But I guess, my general view of it is, I mean, why would you not want to take advantage of a media to reach people in a different way 
that's part of it. And then the other part of it is how do you consume media? Um, because I know, I mean, I do like reading articles. Uh, don't get me wrong. I l love them as much as anyone I think could possibly love to read articles, which is a weird, you know, thing. But I can't do it all day, every day. I, I totally burn out. And when I'm driving in the car, when I'm going on a super long bike ride or going for a long run, I, I want to listen to something different. And so, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you, for me, it was a legal podcast that kind of flipped the switch in my mind um, because my opinion of podcasting was prior to then, um, and I don't think I was, a, I wasn't an early Bedside Rounds devotee, forgive me. I didn't think I even knew it existed. Um, but prior to prior to me launching, um, my understanding of podcasts was I thought they were only for the general public. Um, that was really what they were. Uh, then I listened to a legal one that was really technically intense. And then I was like, oh shit, you can make a podcast that's very technically accurate for people in your field. And that was kind of what in interested me. And I started in 2018. You started many years before me. Um, uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, you also, I mean, you you still scribble. I still see you. You know, you still publish articles. Um, yeah, you yeah, still, yeah, I'm yeah, not like yeah. you. I, I publish like five articles a year. Okay. So it's not, I mean, for... Journals are never going to go away, right? For like research dissemination, like right. original research, yeah. uh, journals are going to be there. And they should be there, right? That's that's one of the roles of medical journals. Now, I think we would both agree that a lot of things are published that probably oh, don't garbage. To Total garbage. garbage. That's right. Surgisphere forever. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not, I'm not saying that everything, yeah. but, but like medical journals have, I mean, they've had a, they've had a role for the past 200 years. I don't think they're going anywhere, but Podcasting, and this is this is where I'm getting. Now you're asking me to talk about my research. Yes. I'm very excited about yes. uh, podcasting. From what we know, and this is purely from, like, I, just to to talk about the domain that I'm talking about uh, in terms of an educational purpose, uh, whether that's didactic or educational, like what plenary session is. Um, I think it offers. Our research suggests that it offers a lot of things beyond what people get from just reading journal articles. Mm -hmm. And some of those things that residents will talk about, and this is from our qualitative research, is they talk about uh, role modeling or professional identity uh, development. For me, things like skepticism, uh, you know, these, these soft skills that are so important, clinical reasoning, right? Things that we really struggle to teach on the wards or struggle to teach our learners, people are picking up from medical podcasts. And I think that's one of the, you know, Everything, med I don't know how much you know about the medical educational uh, literature, but everything wants to be uh, quantitative, right? Mm -hmm. So th so everything is knowledge transfer, right? Mm -hmm. Like make a make a multiple choice test. What, mm -hmm. what, how was that different after you did a right, right. podcast? But there's all of these uh, other important skills that you cannot measure with multiple choice tests that I think people are getting from podcasts that I'm really excited about. That's interesting. Okay. So, I mean, uh, as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about rigorous evidence, when I look at medical education evidence, I want to rip my hair out um, yeah. because it's often, you know, uh, low sample size, innumerable sort of classical problems. And if you had that kind of inference for a drug you're giving on the wards, you, you'd, you'd soil yourself uh, with the, the uncertainty. Uh, <laughs> yes. But, um, but your point is well taken. I mean, I guess I have couched it a little bit like one of the goals is entertainment. And I guess, I mean, I have to admit, your podcast, in addition to other things, is entertainment entertaining. Uh, and we'll talk about, I think, the different styles of podcasts, because I want to pick your brain on that a little bit. But I mean, you're putting out an entertaining hour, typically, you know, half hour, hour of a show. It's like a radio lab. It's something that you, you're frankly, you, you sometimes you would rather do that than watch a TV show or movie. That's one. Two, 
um, education. You're giving people a history lesson. Um, you more than me, of course. You're 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 almost uh, uh, an amateur historian at this point. I mean, you spend a lot of time in those um, horrible library stacks, uh, looking at old dusty tomes. Um, so you're giving a little bit of history, and that's something that I think a lot of us in medicine we always wanted a little more of. Um, and you know, it's just it's just there's not that much room in the curriculum for it. Um, it's filled up with Krebs cycle and things like that that are super important, like that. Um, and then the other thing you do is um, you talk people through uncertainty, how do you make decisions? And and you use the word epistemology a lot, which is really what you are interested in, I think, which is why do we think we know what we know? Um, and, um, and, 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 and so that's an educational part to it as well. And so, and, and I guess now you want to say, you, you like to emphasize that educational part as well. Yeah. And so getting, getting to, I, I'm going to use some, some of my own terminology. Sure. One of the one of the we talked about foam earlier, right? Yes. Free, open access medical education. The idea of foam. Foam. I hate uh, that foam. term, but go on. I hate foam. the term too. Oh my god. Foam. Yeah. So I don't like the term foam, um, but it was it, it is very historically important for what it is. Sure. And foam is was you know started in the emergency medicine community. This idea that there's no reason to have things behind paywalls. Now, you know they reference articles that are behind paywalls anyway. <laughs> so I don't I don't know how effective that is, but yeah. still this idea that things should be free and open. Of course. To me, the what is unique about what we are doing and about this movement that is happening and a, a, like a dominant movement, right? Like medical podcasts and YouTube, those are actually, both of them are much higher than textbooks, is that these are being created by individuals who are outside of formal medical curricula, who are outside of publishing companies, right? The yes. vast majority of these, yes. it's not like Walter's Kluwer, like they have up to date, but they're not out there making a podcast that everybody is listening to. No, they suck at it. When they try, they suck. Good. Right. Yeah, so what is it? Suck, what is yeah. it that makes the most popular medical podcast yeah. special? And you said entertaining, and I think that is one of the things that it is. Right. It, mm -hmm. We the people who rise to the top are effective teachers. They're entertaining. They make it fun to listen. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there are uh, like you get a. <laughs> Especially, I mean, no, go on. Yeah, authenticity. I think plenary right. session also. Yeah, there's a little uh, heterodoxy, right? Um, <laughs> it's authentic you, to who I am, and yours is authentic to who you are. I mean, we were, yeah. and 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 people. I mean, I mean, it's uh, everyone's free to go to be. But but I, I will say one thing: your podcast is more authentically you than the New England Journal or Elsevier Saunders is authentically anybody, right? Um, so we we do have that. We have personality, uh, and I think that's true about you also, right? So like, <laughs> okay. uh, it's funny. I'm sure this happens to you. So uh, frequently, especially at my own institution interns will start and then or people will talk to me like they know me already and it's yeah, because they yes. spend so much time listening to that and yeah. it's not untrue i am a huge nerd and i, I can go on about obscure obscurantist uh -huh. historical topics uh -huh. for a long time but wait finish your thought i interrupted you so you were oh, going to yeah, say yeah education and then what what do you think is the driver what is it that yeah you, you were going to tell me your your insight and i want to know it well i i can tell you what my qualitative research shows, sure. or i can tell you what my so uh, or, no just tell me your gut I guess, okay. or, or your quality of research, either one. I'm happy to accept either one. My, so one thing that I know is, is it, it, this is not really relevant to our podcasts, but say like the curbsiders or more um, traditional didactic podcasts. It's just I think so. knowledge efficiency, right? It's like they're getting the best teachers. There's no reason to reproduce everything at a local level. And you can listen to whenever you want. So it's it's knowledge efficiency. Yes, um, and that's I what you were saying. You do it like when you're cycling. I These days I have a toddler behind me on my bike, so I don't listen to podcasts <laughs> as much. But like in the old days, I would go on a four-hour a four ride and I just listen to podcasts That's time. exactly, you know, uh, I would take the Springwater Corridor all the way out uh, to, to uh, you know, uh, at the end of the trail. And I'd come back and I'd, I'd go through the hills, uh, Northwest Hills in Portland. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. That's when I did a lot of listening, a lot of listening. And I'd, yeah. I'd, crush, I'd crush a few shows because I also go like two times speed. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends. I don't think people listen to either your podcast or my podcast at higher speeds because we both talk so quickly. Uh. <laughs> um, and then the other thing is, like, especially from a resin perspective, noon conference is the worst, right? Modern medical, like, modern graduate medical education is not set up so that you can have effective Garbage. learning. Yeah. yeah. So our residents learn from essentially, like, really good teachers on their own time. So I, I think that's where you get... And again, this is not really plenary session or bedside rounds, but this is more of our, our didactic podcast. Right? Yeah, Those and that's a so and that's a big chunk of podcasts. I guess I would say, I mean, I I agree with you a lot, which is I don't understand for the life of me why we have a lymphoma lecture taught locally by every local random person when we can just kind of screen for the best lymphoma lecture or you know whatever topic, anemia or you know uh, hyponatremia oh. or whatever, and and then just have that available as a video or a module or a podcast or you know some interactive thing that people. Can access. Um, I will say, um, you know, I would even go further, and I would say that for a lot of these topics, you know, they're they're in the midst of a live debate, and so it might be nice to get a kind of dueling views or some sort of sort of see the range of the views on an issue. Um, and occasionally, when I listen to some of the, the the didactic ones, the thing that irritates me, of course, is that I feel like it is not presenting the range of views as I would want it presented. Right, but of course, right. right, you know, we can all be we can all complain, and plus, and you know, you and I both know that because we get emails from people. Um, yeah, I, there's a lack of nuance, but I mean. This is this is one of my pet peeves when yeah. people, uh, let's say, are overcritical of podcasts. And yes. I'm like, have you not Shit seen what new podcasts, conferences yeah. are like? Right, no, I people, know. They're garbage. will be very yeah. hard. And I'll be like, the, the, the comparison here is not a peer-reviewed journal article. The comparison is like a didactic that the residents get at, at lunch. And this is much better. That's a good point. You know, what should be the fair comparison? That's a good point. People saying a lot of nonsense on uh, in, the, in the noon talks, and they're delivering it poorly. Um, okay, why don't you tell me a little bit about... Um, the thing I've been curious about yours is, um, you know, we both make podcasts, but that's about all our podcasts have in common, frankly, because, uh, no, I mean, I think they're, I hope that, I mean, I like to listen to yours a great deal, actually. Um, uh, so it's not, it's not to disparage. I think they're just different, they're different things entirely. I mean, you're putting together every month a very, very well curated cut um, product. It's really like, um, like a filmmaker splicing the scenes um, and, and, I don't know if the listeners will fully appreciate that, but when they listen, there'll be many, many pieces of music, many, many fade-ins, fade-outs, many cuts, many interspersing of you, a guest, somebody else talking. Um, it is like Radiolab. I mean, Radiolab is a, is a production. Um, when people like me and a lot of other podcasters put it out, it's a, it's just a different product. It's a, first of all, it comes much more frequently for better or worse. <laughs> Some people say it's worse because they are sick of listening, but um, it comes more frequently. Um, it's mostly an uncut interview with very minimal edits. Um, and then I do something different than I think a lot of people, because I actually do do monologues and things where I rant um, extemporaneously. And I think that I would say the most common podcast format, if I were to look through the whatever million podcasts out there is two people having a dialogue and there's a rotating guest every episode. Um, that's the most common. Um, oh, I've done research on this. I can tell you what the most. Okay, common. actually, oh yeah, tell me what are the what are what are the yeah. So and then the last thing is like the didactic curbsider stuff. Um, uh, so tell me, so what does it look like? What are the most common types of podcasts? Where do you put yourself in? Yeah. Please. Oh yeah, yeah. So you are you're actually correct, right? Okay. So if you look if you look at the data, and this is from the coding, I sent you the list, right? Of the um, I think uh, the medical the top medical podcasts. Yeah. In, yeah. In the unfortunately plenary session, not listed there because <laughs> it's under science not and not there. medicine. Oh no. So well, I don't only know if you're listed in medicine, <laughs> yes, a dialogue as as you say. So. And why uh, the hell am I science? I want to be medicine. Damn them. 
Apple. I can show you how to. I can show you how to change it. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I will. You I'll choose yourself. I know exactly what happened with you. It's when Apple re. You guys signed up right before Apple rejiggered everything, and I, I don't see. think you ever switched to the new system. Fuckers. That's neither here nor there. Okay. Uh, I don't remember. Oh, yeah. So, um, this is this. Let's take this a little bit broader than just podcasting and talk about what I call organic digital education. Anyway, okay. so that's any digital education that's coming from independent sources. Ah, I see. Not institutions. Got it. Not okay. institutions. Yeah. So. Like, there is so much creativity. So let's actually, I'm going to pivot to talking about tutorials because you, I'm sure oh, you yeah. realize this, that you are one of the first popularizers of the tutorial format, yeah. you and Daryl Francis. Yeah, I think we were the like one of the first two who popular, who pop, I don't know who, I think Daryl may have made the, the word, but I quickly used it a lot. Yeah. Well, Daryl used the word tutorial as a synonym for what was called a tweet storm. So I, I, I did a research uh -huh. paper on okay. this. And oh, then okay. you were the first one to do a tutorial in what I would say is the... Uh, traditional format, which is as a didactic exercise. I see. Okay. <laughs> oh, uh, but, good. But so tutorials have existed since twenty late 2017. Okay. And in the year 2020, tutorials have like blossomed into all of these different creative ways, yeah. for better or for worse, right. but uh, of people using Twitter for education or for other purposes. Yeah. And the same thing that you point out with podcasts. If you look at the early medical podcasts, just yeah. say like in 2012, um, they're not very, <laughs> there's no, they're not particularly good, but Eight years later, it has blossomed into, you can listen to, like, your your podcasts are a mashup of, as you call it, rants plus interviews. Yes. That's very free, free, uh, free form. You have something like um, The Nocturnus, which is basically like a story slam. You you have my, my podcast. You have, you have every single thing imaginable. I see. Because you have the space to be creative and experiment and see what works. And for better or worse, like... The audience will not listen if it doesn't work. It's not like a noon conference. You don't have a captive audience. I've tried so many different things. Like I, I, I mean, tried other segments. Um, like I did Journal Club with a fellow where the fellow comes in and presents a journal article. That's actually been quite popular, but my limitation is like the fellows are not emailing me as I expected them to. My other thing I tried was was um, doing board review questions with some of the fellows because I always found that those dialogues were kind of interesting and fun, but I got so much hate mail about it. All these people were like, why are you doing a board review question? I can just read it myself. And I was like, well, screw you. I, we were saying things that were not in the boards. But anyway, um, you, I, I, so I, I ended it up. And it's also a lot more work to do those kinds of things. So yes, like, it is. That is true. More work. Um, and uh, I guess the other question I had was, um, you, 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 I mean, you're, you're, ta you're, you're talking about medical podcasts, but I guess if one thinks about podcasting broadly, Am I incorrect? Like, I think like the Rogan podcast is like the most common podcast form. There's this one guy who's in every episode and he keeps circulating the guest and they just talk for some period of time. Is that, am I incorrect or, or we haven't, you haven't looked at that explicitly? I don't know. So okay. I don't know overall what the most common type is. I just know within medicine, which within is usually medicine. similar to the Rogan, but with multiple, uh, multiple hosts. I see with multiple hosts. Okay. And, um, okay. Interesting. Your podcast, I mean, how much work is this taking, like, to put out an hour of audio? Uh, yeah, so, like, 15 hours, probably, uh, of, of work, most of that research and writing. Like, recording, I don't put a lot of effort into recording. And then what about the editing and splicing and all that business? Uh, less than you think. Uh, probably three, if it takes an hour to record, three hours to edit. You do it yourself. Yeah, I should get someone else to do it. I am a control freak. <laughs> and what about... Um, how has your institution rewarded you for doing this work? Um, is it your scholarship? Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, I am now the director of, oh my God, what is IMED? Oh, so it's the IMED Initiative, and it stands for Innovations in Media and Education Delivery. Uh, it's more that IMED sounds great rather than the sounds good, acronym. Yeah. But yeah, essentially, uh, my my institution has been incredibly supportive, and our, we have basically a research lab now with the goal of converting graduate medical education into uh, asynchronous medical education, right? So integrating all of these... Uh, ODE resources into medical curricula. And, you know, the goal, my, my goal five years down the line would be to have like a self-directed learning track, right? Where, uh, where residents don't need to have this pre-built-in didactic, but can choose from a variety of sources that are good for them, that are efficient use of time for them. So that's why I'm really excited about all this, is I think there is a huge opportunity to, I don't want to say fundamentally reform medical education, but make it, make it more efficient. Well, that's fascinating. So your your vision for all this is like when the residents instead of going to their noon talk they people can just be like you know i'm gonna go get lunch or i'm gonna go for a walk and i'm gonna listen to an episode on you know whatever heart failure yeah or or have more things that are like built into the curriculum more things that are hands-on and effective so like coaching or or you know or just time to decompress and eat lunch with their uh, with their friends which i actually think is the single most underused thing in residency is just time to actually uh, just uh, just to chat that's interesting what about things like morning report i mean i feel like some of these yeah. live things they just can't be replaced or exactly you're okay. 100% right i'm not i there are things that are never going to be replaced I right? see. and morning report if done well i think like you have the opportunity to talk through with faculty with real patients and to talk with your colleagues that's really valuable if somebody approached your podcast for the first time and you and they were like, uh, I just want I want to listen to like five episodes that will give me kind of an overview of the kinds of issues you're. Do you have such a list? Uh, I could probably come up with. Well, you know the sort of things that I'm really excited about. There, these would be like a lot of my epistemology. Uh, so it would be like the like London Fog have. one. Yeah, yeah. Ta- so talking about um, those, that's like Bradford Hill, the, yes. the Bradford Hill criteria. Yeah. And then I really enjoyed the two part series I did on Pierre Louis um, and the numerical method. Okay. Th- those are the sort of things that I get really excited about. And that's where people should check in first. Okay. Um, what about your? Um, what What have been the frustrations as a podcast host? What are the things that have have, have bother you? Oh, now or historically? I guess let's do let's do both. Well, let's start, so we'll start historically. So I was not taken very seriously for a while, right? So when I was, the reason you never knew I had a podcast is that I, like, there was hostility from uh, my superiors as a resident. So I kind of kept it on the down low because mm. I was, I was a little bit embarrassed about it, right? So uh, starting out, um, even when I was in Botswana in my first years of faculty, well, I'll say everyone at, at the BI has actually been really supportive, but people were like, why are you wasting your time on this? And I initially viewed it as a hobby, right? I was like, oh, I, I am doing this because I enjoy it. Um, so I, I think people not really getting, that doesn't happen anymore. Every, everybody gets it now. But back then, that was the uh, that was the beginning. And of course, time. Um, I, have, I have two kids. I have a not an academic career like you, but I have like a, a 20% academic career. So it's it's hard to work all of that in there. Um, and I still, I, I, I think podcasting is not taken as seriously as if I were writing, say, a book article, even though I know if I wrote an, like a, so not a, a book chapter, even if I wrote a chapter for a book, like no one would read it. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, no one would read it. No, I promise you. As the author of two books, I can tell you people don't read. <laughs> I can get more people listening to my audiobook that I narrated really on this microphone. Really, ending medical reversal? Because you know that no. after I met you, I went and I bought a copy of that book. Mm. And what do you think? Did you like it? No, don't say you didn't read it. <laughs> no, I read it. I read okay. it. I bought it and I read it. This and you was read a, it. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and I read it. I actually referenced it on a, I did an early episode about it. 
Oh, so shut you know up. That it made a, uh, yeah, this is like episode 11 or something. I'll have to I, check uh, that out. Okay. Before I, I before I knew Adam at all, and I just... Uh, I... <laughs> Sifu's your biggest fan. Yeah, of course. Yeah, he's your biggest fan. He's always tweeting at you. That's how I know he really likes your stuff. Um, no, I think... And, and well-deserved. Um, what's, uh, what's your biggest frustration? I'll ask you that. Oh, my God. So many. Um, I guess... I guess... <laughs> I guess, to be perfectly honest with you... Um, the biggest frustration I have is people, people at me, like I'm working on this for 20 hours a week and I'm like, I'm working on this for literally two to three hours a week. Um, it's like, I just don't have time to do it. I mean, I'm already like stretched to the limits on everything else I'm doing. And so, um, you know, it would be great if I would put a transcript out as I keep hearing. It would be great if I would have like bullet points of where you could listen to whatever you want to listen. It would be great if I could get um, all the guests they suggest I get. Like these A-level A guests they think are going to come on plenary session. I mean, no offense to you. You're A-level. But I'm talking about like <laughs> celebrities. Like they think I'm get some celebrity, some politician. And I guess I'm like, I don't know. I think the the core issue is that when you make it, you know what it takes to make. And when you listen, you think everything is possible. And I think my yeah. core frustration is when people don't see that connection. So, um, yeah, that's 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 good, right? Because people listen. So, for example, I might have a 35-minute episode, and people listen to that, and they're like, oh, that's great. And they don't realize that there were, like, 20 hours uh, behind, behind the, the scenes. Yeah, behind the scenes. What, well, you're spending, I would say, probably a few orders of magnitude more time on your episode than I'm spending. I mean, like, when I do a journal club review, I literally read the article in 15, 20 minutes, and I made some bullet points, and I'm, you know, I'm doing it. But, I mean, it's just a limit. We all have our limits. Like, you can't spend 100 hours, 1,000 hours. You're not radio you don't have a staff of 20 people, yeah. um, right? I have no staff. I mean, I have Kiana, who is spectacularly good, but this is not her sole um, lot in life, and it's not all she does. She does many other things, um, and, uh, and and that's it. And, and, and we're doing it on a, you know, out of our own, like on a shoestring budget, out of our own pockets, and the only source of funding we have is the Patreon backers. We don't have advertisements. Um, I wonder, so does Beth Israel actually help you fund the project? Do they... No. And do they pay no, for your no. time? This IMED thing you're doing, is does that buy you down FTE? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Buy, okay. So IMED as a whole buys down my FTE. I mean, okay. my job description, however, is like it's a research lab. So, uh, I, so. Uh, yeah, I'm, um, <clears throat> I'm about two-thirds clinical these days. Two-thirds clinical. Then who funds yeah. IMED? The institution? Yes, the department. That's amazing. I'm surprised. These departments, they... It's hard to get a department to cough up anything these days. In this well, I mean, I think uh, so. I, I now now because I'm telling, yes. <laughs> I'm talking about Beth Israel. I should do some uh, some self promotion because the the goal right is for Beth Israel what we're doing right. So we've built a curriculum. Uh, okay, I'll take a step back. One of the things that Beth Israel and one reason that I really love Beth Israel is that they're being really forward thinking about what it means to be a medical educator in the future. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is not like we teach people to do chalk talks, all these like stodgy, stodgy things that would have been appropriate in 1960. But to be a medical educator in the year 2020 means you have to be a native in a lot of these digital spaces, right? Even if you aren't creating stuff yourself, your learners are there. You need to know how to curate material. You need to know the basics of critical appraisal because, as you say, right, there's not necessarily great critical appraisal built into a lot of these, a lot of these things. Uh, so we've actually, you know, we have a curriculum with our residents as part of their senior teacher work to teach them how to a actually create uh, like digital educational material. Interesting. Um, and then there, are, they, God bless my residents who are the uh, the people that we're doing all of our studies on. To guinea pigs. Our guinea pigs, yeah. That's interesting. So to come back to this, um, 
I guess I, I guess I guess I would say I mean one potential vision for your your world might be you join medical school and and there are a set of core lectures or content you get. But you have a choice. You could either watch a video, you could go to class, you could get listen to a podcast, and and you get some sort of core education from that. Um, there are small groups and discussions because that kind of stuff always keeps us engaged. That probably that will always be in person, I would imagine. Probably not recorded because we want no record of what's said in those things. Um, <laughs> but but I guess your vision of it is is that why you know do we constrain the way in which you can get the information? Um, is that a fair assessment? Right. Why constrain the way in which we get the information, and why have rigid? Right. So when you keep things within an institution, you are. The constraints, the intellectual constraints of that institution are on you. When you open things up to the wider world, there are, for example, let's let's say, uh, let's talk about doing journal clubs in general. I have lots of, I've seen you do a journal club. You do a great journal club. I, I have had very poor journal clubs yeah, taught me to me yeah, as yeah, a resident where people just taught me lies. Like yeah. things that are not true. They're like, uh, like wh- th- this subgroup crosses one, so it doesn't work in that subgroup. Oh, I'm like, oh my exactly god, mind <laughs> crazy? No, that's not how it works. <laughs> uh, the, my my favorite is that I was taught to look at table one and to see of, look of for the p values. Yeah, look for the p values. Ah. Which I like, and like we'd be like, oh, this is so suspicious. What yeah. do you think they're? Do you think they're lying about you randomization? Think I know, and then they right? It in table I know. One? <laughs> Are you crazy? Do they not understand it? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So yeah. I was right. taught that as a resident. Yeah, so, yeah, I, like, I there there are going to be different ways of teaching things that may be more effective, and that by opening things up, that'll also have different didactic. That's a good coming. point. That's fascinating. Yeah, I I I, I agree with you that. Um, that we are all taught those things, those mythologies, especially when it comes to reading, I think, trials, because because the people who are teaching you didn't get taught themselves how to do it. Um, I'm taught in clinical medicine, too, right? I mean, yeah. I, I see people acculturated in, in medicine from an institution that has very little basis in reality. That's interesting. Okay, um, I wanted to ask you the historical work. Is your process similar to a historian, or is it different? You're not a historian by training, at least I don't mm. think you are. I, um, well, I'm in like the the uh, Hopkins History of Medicine course, but I can't I see. do all of that all at once. So who so, runs it, Jeremy, Jeremy Green? Oh yeah, do you know Jeremy? Yeah, yeah he's know, the. Yeah, uh, yeah. I see. Yeah. So so, um, what have you learned about history, con- like reconstructing history that you did not know when you started? Oh yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so. Uh, in terms of, uh, so first to answer your first question, I think I approach history more like a, like a physician, right? Mm-hmm. So like a, like an internist, uh, trying to, trying to solve a problem, which to be fair, a lot of traditional history of medicine is done because a lot until recently, most history of medicine was done by, by physicians. But, um, what, what it has taught me is that, uh, a lot of things that we think are built on a very strong foundation are in fact built on a very weak foundation and if we could if we had like grade criteria for everything uh every everything that we take for granted even kind of fundamental approaches to practicing medicine are built on so many contingencies and when you start to realize that and realize that like even the structure of residency training how it's just been baked in through a bunch of historical contingencies you start to realize huh there must be better ways to do things so i i think that's the you know you could look at my podcast as exploring why why the medicine that you and i practice today why it ended up this way and looking at all the historical contingencies that brought us to that point and how arbitrary or how locked into exactly. a certain like cultural milieu they were 
I see. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Historical accident is um, is is the the real uh, is the real pillar of medicine. Uh, why we do what we do. There's the basic science. There's the the empiricism, and there's historical accident. And a lot of what we do is still rooted in historical accident. Um, and I think there are interesting epistemology questions that come from that, which is. Um, the debates you can have with somebody where they say, we ought to do X, Y, or Z new, even though the evidence is weak. And sometimes they rebut, and then you say, well, we should not uh, adopt this new practice. And I say, well, the old practice was based on just as lousy evidence. And, and so how do you reconcile those questions? And I think it, it, it's, it's a lot, there's, a, there's a depth to it. Um, and, that there, and standards have evolved and become higher, and, and cost and invasiveness and harms actually do you know, play a role in, in where you set the bar. I guess yeah. as we'll learn today with the EUA, yeah. Yes. Oh, that is, is today the 10th? Yeah, yes, it today's is the 10th. The 10th, yeah. Yeah. And, well, and, you know, this comes down to even, like, when you talk in, the, the, like, theoreticals about this, it seems very high. But then you just talk about individual day-to-day decisions that seem incredibly mundane. But you're talking, like, just diuresing a patient on the ward, right? right. Like, what, what dose of a loop diuretic should I? I right. And. and if you really want to seriously discuss that, you're going to end up in a conversation like this. For, or or what if their albumin is a little bit touch low? What do yeah, you use that? what do you do? Oh, boy. Could argue about that for all day. Yeah, all yes. day. Yeah. And you're not going to settle it because ultimately you're dealing with weak evidence from a bunch of different uh, epistemologies. Just make sure you replete that K. <laughs> oh, God. You know, how to, you know how to trigger me. <laughs> no, my, my residents love to check uh, twice daily uh, BMPs on every oh, patient who gets a, who's touched by a loop diuretic. <laughs> and then I'm like, you guys know when I was in Botswana, I was giving like 200 IV daily uh, and I was checking like lights once every three days. You just give them like 80 of potassium a day. They're fine. It's interesting. So here's a question for you. Um, the field's interested in medical, actually, before I make my question, no, I'll make my question. The fields interested in medical education, in my mind, have historically been general internal medicine, pediatrics, emergency medicine. They've come on. They're, and they're gunners in the digital space. I mean, they're probably ahead of everyone in the digital space. EM is about 10 years ahead of us, yeah. Yeah, they're, ten, they're really... It's all that free time they have on their hands because of their, their shift work. No, just kidding. Just kidding, EM. Love you guys. Love you guys. <laughs> I actually think it's because they're a new field, right? Uh, uh, they're a, they're a more much newer field. More yeah. In, yeah, exactly. And I it draws see. those sorts of people. Yeah, that's a good point. No, it could easily be. Um, there are some fields that I don't, I don't, hear, too, I don't hear much, of a, much from. Um, neurosurgery, do they even have anything? Um, orthopedic surgery, um, it's quiet, all quiet. Uh, they don't have any podcasts that they don't, are in right? the list that I sent you. Yeah. So what do you think's going on there? The, the similar thing is it, it relates to me also when people talk about low-value care. In internists, you guys, internists, you're finding every unnecessary folic acid blood test from the hospital. Meanwhile, in oncology, we just dropped uh, 275 grand on a drug that don't do nothing. You know, like, know, so every dollar you're saving, we're like blowing over here. Yeah. Uh, do you, uh, so this is, this is pure speculation, but I think... If I, because you've named two surgical fields, yes. and I think that if you look at the divide, that it's going to go back to a very ancient divide, which is the difference between physicians and surgeons, okay. yeah. uh, who very, like, from a very historic perspective, have fundamentally different ways of of training. Right? If you were to go back to the like late, uh, the late eighteenth century, you and I, we'd be learning completely different things, but it would be similar in that we'd sit down, we'd read a lot of books, we'd discuss patients, we'd see patients on the wards. 
Um, whereas the surgeons from the very beginning would be learning in sort of an apprentice style uh, relationship with a experienced surgeon. And surgical training is, you know, there's still a lot of that. And I think that that kind of fundamental divide still still exists. I'd say. And so that's why they're, they, they're, the, the way they conceptualize this education process is different, maybe. Yeah, and like neurology, pediatrics, emergency medicine, all of those come from the the physician, the medicine side of the evolutionary tree, whereas orthopedics, neurosurgery, those come from another side that were originally two separate fields. Do you ever get frustrated with, um, you may not know, but, um, you know, every time an institution hires a new laboratory scientist, a new MD, PhD, a new PhD, the amount of investment the institution sinks into those projects is 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 immense. I mean, it's upwards of one. To, it's easily one to two million dollar investment, um, and probably even more if you include salary support and things like that. Um, they have money. They got money for these sorts of things for somebody pipetting something, um, for somebody doing something of dubious dubious translation value. Um, but when it comes to education, they don't have a dime. Uh, yeah. Th- yeah, go on. Oh, of course. I mean, there's also a historic reason for that. Which okay, is what is that? that? Yeah, so uh, historically, and not even that long ago, residents have been treated as the expendable labor in mm. the um, in the hospital, right? I think that's where this history of not having a lot of... And, and the hospital's funding is reliant on that. So I think that's where that comes from. I think it's 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 a problematic thing in a couple of ways. One is... That, um, you know, in a way, podcasting has kept somebody like an Adam Rodman uh, in academic medicine. I mean, um, it's a good thing. Uh, like, the, in, in a counterfactual world without free open access medical, I, I hate that word, but in, in a counterfactual world with, where individuals cannot create these products, there is a frustration amongst many that there is no path, no career path in the traditional ac- academy, and they go to private practice because, you know, if you're going to get doing the same full-time clinical job, you know, why get, you know, three quarters the money or two thirds the money? Um, right. I think it's, I mean, I think this is probably the single greatest failure of the academy, which is that um, like what we value in terms of scholarship and how we undervalue education, how we give tenure to somebody working on an ion channel, what, for what purpose? What controversial thing is they ever going to say? But they don't yes. give tenure for somebody working on controversial issues. That doesn't get tenure. Um, it's just such a misalignment between where the priorities are and where they ought to be. Uh, a bedside rounds is like a nature paper a month, you know? It's that level of, of caliber. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I don't you, know that that's true, but I'll but, take it. But, I mean, uh, most nature papers aren't getting 30,000 people, actually. And the other thing about, like, when you look at these statistics of journal articles, that's how many people clicked on it. It's not how many people read it. How many people actually got to the end of it? Oh, Lord knows. The, the same is true in podcasting. I'm sure many of my podcasts, there's attrition. It's like um, it's like Napoleon's march out of Russia for some of my podcasts. But uh, for some of them, and particularly yours probably, people make it through the end. Um, yeah, there's not that much attrition. It's uh, about 20, 20% In your podcast. Yeah. But in my podcast, it's Napoleon coming out of Russia. Well, yours are like four times, <laughs> four times as long as mine. Mine are. <laughs> so what, what are your thoughts here? Oh, you mean how I feel? Yes, absolutely, right? Education, if you look at where the money is in the academy, you would not think at all that people value education, right? I mean, the, the funding, the support for clinician educators is, is very, very low. Um, and education plays, I mean, I think education is very important. Obviously, I've chosen to, to do it for my career. So I, I agree with you. I think this is a, um, 
I always try to think about the historic reason for this is. Yeah, and good. I think that the historic reason is the primacy of scientific medicine, um, which placed a value. Like if you if you look back at some of the, the debates, even Osler himself was not the biggest fan of scientific medicine for this reason. Um, Osler, obviously a big advocate for uh, using the most latest up-to-date science and medicine, but felt that a pure focus on um especially on basic science, got away from the importance of building relationships with patients and the educational relationship with the trainees. Mm -hmm. And I think that we made that decision in the early 20th century, and it's paid lots of dividends, right? I mean, scientific medicine has done wonderful things for humanity on the whole, but it hasn't done all good things all the time. And this is one of the consequences of that. Yeah, that's a, a yeah a theme of some of what I've written about is like, we prioritize mechanism over empiricism. And sometimes that leads us astray as well. Uh, it's yes. also a great um, way to generate therapies, but it also leads you astray, especially when you when when the two are in direct conflict and you raise the the logic over the actual results of the study, that uh, is a troubling arrangement. Yeah, um, and that debate actually goes back to like 400 BCE, right? Really? So you can go back to yeah, oh yeah, you can go back to the Greeks, and you have the empiricist the yes. empiricist school who's who's arguing against the dogmatists, and they're like, look, you this is about the humors, of course, yes. but they're like. People, they're like, drugs work because we've been using them a long time and we discovered that drugs work. And then you made up a mechanism after. Like, it's all post hoc. So this debate's very old. Yeah, well, I guess if you if you ever round with me and somebody says, you know, why do we prescribe an ACE inhibitor in heart failure? Um, the students often gravitate to the response of, oh, angiotensin, AT2 receptors, um, that's TGF beta signaling, that's ventricular remodeling, uh, that actually improves cardiac. I'm like, no, 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 no. Multiple randomized control trials show mortality benefit. That's why we do it. Now that little story you tell yourself to go to sleep at night, that may be the mechanism de jour of 2020, but maybe not in 2022. Um, yes. Let me ask you about that. There is, um, it's interesting to me because you're interested in this question fundamentally, which is why do we do what we do? That's, that's often a question that you are asking. And the reality is the true answer is often the answer that you favor, which is the historical answer. The reason we do what we do is because it was once this was a dilemma and they chose in this manner based on this available evidence at that time. Um, the reason I like, I gravitate to is the empirical answer. Why do we do what we do? It's what is the best evidence that supports this choice and why does that evidence contradict other choices? Um, there's a very popular movement and there are a lot of good and mediocre practitioners of it where they embrace the pathophysiology. And when I look at sort of the ocean of medical education, pathophysiology still captures the imagination of many people. Like why does the hemoglobin go down on day three of hospitalization or things like that, you know? And I guess I want to say that many of the stories I read are incredibly compelling. And I believe many are, in fact, accurate. They're accurately the best explanation for why that phenomenon happens. But I'll give one analogy. You know, many years ago, we wondered why thalidomide and thalidomide derivatives work in multiple myeloma. And there were all sorts of stories people would tell. And then finally, with work that came out of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, um, and in a, in a couple of nature papers, they elucidated some of the downstream transcription factors that play a role in this. And I would say that um, long story short, not all of the original explanations that were parsimonious ended up being correct uh, when they were sort of vigorously interrogated at the, at the downstream level. And so I guess I wonder, my question to you is, how do you think about, how do you separate just-so stories, the Rudyard Kipling stories, um, you know, the stories that make sense, yeah. from the stories that really have robust sort of perturbation at every level that really shows the story is, is rock solid? 
That's such a okay. So the, you've pushed. Th this is something that I, I've uh, like I, I've I've spoken about before, and this is like a fundamental tension uh, in practicing medicine, right? So uh, to to put it in philosophical terms, yes. like how do you how do you square empiricism with physiology with with rationalism? And I unfortunately, and this is what's happened is the more that I've done this podcast, and the more that I've read like studies from the last hundred and fifty years, is that often there's not a really good like you you get to a, a wall, right? You get to two different reasoning points that are hitting into each other. And what you want, right, is often you want a really well-done randomized control trial. It's never going to happen. And you just have to kind of muddle through, and that's medicine. And hopefully we can do that without acting too cocky and arrogant and pretending like we have great evidence for something we don't. Yes. Uh, so, yes, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, and, and, and often you will not get that good evidence. You still have to make a decision. And I guess um, – yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two there's two issues here to unpack. <clears throat> One issue is how does the doctor make decisions in the face of uncertain empirical data, which is often, in fact, according to one BMJ analysis, fifty percent of the decisions we're making. Um, the second issue is um, when we tell those pathophysiology stories, how do we know those stories oh, yeah, are the great. most faithful? You know, faithful, faithful synergy of the model. You know, because like. I mean, I recently had a student who was rotating my clinic, and this guy worked in a lab where they worked on um, why does thalidomide cause, um, you know, that the, the the malformation in utero, and and this person has spent a great deal of time mapping it out. But when I really got into the weeds, this person was like, "Well, there are a lot of areas that we're still uncertain about." Um, so, what? How do you how do you think about that? You know, when you, yeah. if you approach I'll be, it. Yeah. So I'll, th th you're, this is a, this is a glimpse into my mind, which yeah. is that. Um, at the end of the day, like, I'm an empiricist, right? So at the end of the day, physiology, I, I think, physiolo physiologi physiological explanations are post hoc explanations. Yes, I agree. Things work or they don't, and we make a narrative about why that works. That narrative may be true, right? I'm not saying that physiology is not true. But at the end of the day, things work based on our experience with them working, and we try to fit narratives as to why we do what we do. And that's, yeah, I, that's, that's my view of the world as well. Yeah, that's my view. And that's why I think... Um, you know, I'll just give you one example. There's two ways to look at a problem. Um, one way to look at a problem is um, we have a chemotherapy regimen that, that has a survival advantage in, in metastatic, a certain type of lung cancer. Um, this type of lung cancer almost never presents in a cut-outable phase, like small cell lung cancer. And when you cut out the small cell lung cancer, there's never been a randomized trial that randomizes people with fully resected small cell lung cancer to adjuvant chemotherapy or not. Okay, so one way to answer this question is the biological question, which is a oh, small, small lung cancer. There's always microscopic disease. It tends to be there. So if you give this, you're likely to kill off that microscopic disease in some fraction of people, and it should have a survival benefit. That's the, 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 the pathophysiology story they tell. And that's, in fact, probably the reason why the practice is to give it, you know? Um, then a few years later, after they're doing that, they did a retrospective observational study that shows that people who received it were more likely to do better than people who didn't receive it. It's not a randomized study. The way I approach that question is as an empiricist, so I approach it fundamentally differently. And the way I approach it is, in all retrospective observational studies of a more aggressive versus less aggressive regimen in cancer, what percent of the time are those subsequently validated by randomized trials when randomized trials are performed on those questions, you know? And the answer is, of course, I know from a new paper that it's like, you know, less than 50%. It's the paucity. Because uh, the, the people you're deploying the aggressive intervention in and the people you're not, the, of course, the, right, yeah, right, of right. course, that's the core yeah. issue, confounding by indication. The doctor, the reason I'm not giving it to this other person is I'm scared to give it because I believe it benefits them, right? So of course, that's going to be a bias in the data and it's very difficult to correct for. The next way I, I come to the question is I, I ask the empirical question, 
of all the times in oncology history a doctor believed an adjuvant treatment was beneficial, what percent of the time they were vindicated? And we actually did this analysis with Eddie Maldonado, who was a chief resident at OHSU, and Scott Parsons, who was a resident, and we, you know, we have our percentage out there. Okay, so I guess the point I want to make is um, the current medical education model, because of you're going to tell me about the history, because of the history of molecular and pathophysiology understandings, students are very well trained at at that first explanation that we should give these drugs because whatever X Y Z it does this in the cell. Students are not very well trained in those empirical questions, which take work. You know, we have to build the data set of all these adjuvant studies or all these retrospective ob studies. Um, they don't approach the question with that hat on. And so I think that like we almost need a class in medical school called how to handle uncertainty. Historically, we've handled uncertainty with this pathophysiology hat. Now we need to handle uncertainty the way, you know, you handle uncertainty when you deal in foreign policy with Iran. Um, you have to handle it taking into account all the domains of life. Yes. Oh, well, before I answer that, I want to give you another example of uh, like, I, and I don't want to say pathophysiology. I want yeah. to say, um, let's talk about let's talk, uh, rationalism, right? Okay. Because I want to, this is bigger. Yes, it's more bigger than pathophysiology, than, right? Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about quinine because I took a deep dive into the quinine literature because we learned that cinchona was yes. effective in treating the disease. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. the, the disease that we would call malaria today. Yes. They did not think of it. They thought of them as tertians and quartans. We learned that was effective yes. through, like, I don't want to say they were rigor, rigorous studies, but they were like, they, they were experiments, and they learned in the 15th, uh, the 16th century that those were effective. Mm -hmm. And then you can look at, so they found an effective medication to treat a very deadly disease. And you can look at how the rationale of why this works changed over the past, like, 700 or 600 years. Yeah. And you can then see, like, people are struggling to fit this into new, like, nosologic or new epistemologic models. But they start with the fact that it cinchona and later quinine works. Right, so the the fact that it works clearly came first, I see, and yes. then why changed? And I mean, if you think about it, we didn't know about the life cycle of uh, like the falciparum species until the eighteen eighties. Mm -hmm. So we knew that quinine worked for a good sixty, seventy years before that. And we knew cinchona worked for five hundred years before that. Do you think the first randomized control trial was the MRC experiment of streptozocin, or was do you go to James Lind? Where, where do you put people <laughs> always arguing? No, so um, oh my God, this is actually really great. The first ran the first true randomized control trial uh, was in the twenties for the um, the anti streptococcal serum by Jesse Beloa mm. in at, at uh, in New York City at oh my God, what hospital was it? I can't remember what hospital, but it's for anti streptococcal serum. Shut up. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll send you the papers. Okay, okay. Uh, Scott Podolsky has done a bunch of work on it. Okay. Fas fascinating stuff. So for anti streptococcal serum, um, the first double blind randomized control trial was the MRC. It was uh, the MRC streptozocin. And then well, James... that was the first one published. It actually wasn't the first one done. It was the first one published. The MRC did two trials. Uh, the streptomycin one so popular because it was a positive trial. Uh -huh, they did a uh, penicillium trial that was a negative trial, and that was actually the first one, but it was published after streptomycin. Streptomycin, sorry, not streptozocin. Yeah, streptomycin. Um, what about James Lind? It was not randomized, but it was to some degree controlled. Oh, yeah, yeah. So James Lind uh, very, very famously did his scurvy trial where he did not randomize, but he tried to, I mean, it's just like two paragraphs. He tried to fit people together as best as he could. So there was like four groups of two sailors who had scurvy, and then he gave each of them different treatments. So not randomized. Mm -hmm. um, it is a trial. And if you actually look, the Royal College of Physicians, their, uh, their evidence unit is called the James Lind Society. Yeah, so. James Lind, yes. I'm familiar with some folks in there. And he, I think Ian Chalmers is, is on the board. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, Jesse Below was really interesting because he was a big advocate of randomization, but then somebody did a random randomized trial. So, like, if you go back to the, the teens, people did alternative allocation trials rather than randomization, and Jesse uh, Below was the first one to randomize. But then he became anti-randomized trial when somebody did a trial that showed that anti-streptococcal serum didn't work. So, <laughs> so in, in other words, he was the true original trialist. He was the true... Because <laughs> that's all they do now. It's, like, all made up. I think that's another challenge that I think is actually a very difficult to articulate challenge, which is that um, all studies can be criticized. No one study shows everything yeah. or shows a substance works under all circumstances. That's by definition cannot be shown. Um, a study can only show a substance works under some circumstances. And then how you interpret a study, I think there's no rule book that says how to. And when you have a lot of people who believe fervently in any cause and you ask them to interpret a study, they will all find faults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in, in inevitability. Um, it's very challenging. It's very challenging to interpret studies neutrally. I, I see, like, I don't even want to mention Danish mask, but, you know, I think it's been misinterpreted in both directions. Um, I think even by the editorialists uh, and certainly by others who say it shows that it doesn't work under any circumstances. And I tried to thread the needle in my little thing, but, you know, it's fighting the ocean. Yeah, and this gets to, as you say, we need a, we need part of our formal education needs to be about making decisions under uncertainty. And I, like, I've, um, I have, as you have, right, I've criticized the term evidence-based medicine before, not because I think that we <coughs> shouldn't make use of, of trials, but because it gives this false epistemology that's a triangle, where you just go higher and it's better data. And that is, and I realize that that is not like what Sackett and Guyatt would say now, right? We have the great, we have different ways of talking about evidence, but at least in my tra trainees I'll, I, and in the popular discourse, I will see like this narrowing of, of decision-making um, when in fact it's you know it's com it's complicated, right? Yes, and and I think one aspect of the pyramid that people don't fully appreciate is, if you allow me, I mean I think the way the the different levels of evidence apply differently to interventions you believe will harm somebody and things that you'll benefit somebody. So I always tell this, you know, I don't know if you've heard me give this spiel, but I would say, imagine a, a line, an axis. And on one end, you have the worst thing you can do to somebody, which probably shoot them point blank range. And on the other end, you have the best thing you can do to somebody, which is the bus is about to hit him, you pull him out of the way, or instead you throw him out of an airplane, but give him a parachute, right? So that's the best thing. And, and I want to say that for all the things on the harm side, and then the dead center point is like a neutral thing to do somebody, like give him a muffin. You know, it's probably neutral, right? Um, eating bacon, that's on the bad side, but like odds ratio, what, two-ish, 1.5-ish. And to be honest, there's so much um, uh, uh, wishful thinking in that data set that maybe it's actually closer to null, you know, eating bacon. It's probably, you know, uh, it, it's got a lot of biases there. Um, smoking, odds ratio 20 on the harm side. So it's kind of out there for, at least for cancer, um, at least for lung cancer, odds ratio is the highest. Um, on the plus side, stenting somebody stay, uh, with a MI, that's beneficial, um, and, and parachute is the most extreme. And, and the way I think about it is um, uh, medicine is a unique subset of this axis. Um, we're, we're not asking the question, is drinking a bottle of benzene dangerous? We're not asking the question, is getting shot in point-blank range dangerous? We're not in the trying to screw someone over business. We're in the trying to help people business, right? So we're on the other side of the axis. Um, and we're also not in the parachute business. Almost nothing we do has effect sizes that large. And that's been shown in a couple studies, but probably the best study is the Tiago Pereira study that looked at everything in Cochrane. We're in this business where we're playing the game of trying to do something with a modest to marginal effect size, um, you know, up to, you know, actually the best thing in my data set of like medical practices that are like parachutes, we found an absolute risk reduction of 40%. Um, you know, so something in, in like that range. So, so like an insulin, like an, uh, like an insulin. penicillin. Yeah. Yeah. 
insulin and penicillin might be a couple that are slightly beyond that because I guess insulin never really had sort of a solid randomized trial on the outset. Uh, it just oh, not at all. Yeah, no. it clearly um, worked, right. Yeah. The, the alternative was starving children to death. So yes. It was pretty uncontroversial. Yes, and same for Hodgkin's. I mean, the original curative studies of Hodgkin's is non-randomized, but Hodgkin's was thought to be a universal death sentence um, in, in the form. Right, I mean, so as you say, right, so the, the, the reason that RCTs are important is that most interventions that we do on a day-to-day basis probably have very modest effects. Yeah, and, and so what I want to say is that the RCT zone is the prerequisites to RCT. And the same reason why we don't do, with one exception, we, you know, we don't do RCTs of putatively harmful interventions. The two prerequisites is it has to be putatively beneficial and it has to have a modest to marginal effect size. And that just so happens to be almost everything we do from right. Impella to balloon pumps to the drugs we give. It just happens to be where we live. And so people who come up with these theatrical parachute example or we didn't do an RCT of smoking, um, although to my knowledge, I think there is some something hinting at that. Um, you tell me. Um, they're missing the point, which is that we're not talking about smoking. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a drug that costs $200,000 that may extend your life two months. Yeah. And so I would go even further than yeah. that, which is I'm, I'm even less interested in the scientific enterprise uh, and, and then how you apply these to your individual patients who have all sorts of complicating circumstances. And that's when it gets even, you know, that's, that's, that's the tricky part, right? That's the being a physician. So my, my philosophy there is... Um, if an intervention shows efficacy under ideal circumstances, almost always the efficacy is eroded under messy real-world circumstances, but the harms are often the yeah, same right, or, right. or higher. And so I, I tend to believe that we play, we, we're chasing the effect size of the RCT, and in fact, we're, we're falling short of it. Um, anyway. Oh, I, I, so I agree with yeah. you. Did you read, um, oh my God, what is the book by Stegenga? Um, oh, Medical Nihilism. Uh, yeah, medical. Yes, Did see. you read medical yes, nihilism? Yes, yes, yes. That's his whole. I mean, he he takes it all from a Bayesian lens. Yes. But that's his entire. That's his entire argument, right? That if, across history, the effect sizes of everything that we do under ideal conditions is is it's very diminuted. small. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say I kind of like that book, but there are parts of the book that I was like, eh. <laughs> I'm yeah, always I mean, my always my bias. Um. <laughs> I read the the book. Actually, a lot of it is very. It, it uses a lot of uh, formal conditional probability. So yes. I found like a third of it very difficult to get through. Very, very difficult. Um, okay. So this has been a very enlightening discussion. Yeah, it went it went lots of different places, didn't it? It went lots of different places. That's what I like. Um, you know, I'm very interested by this. Um, um, I'm I'm grateful and glad you have. Um, oh well, I guess the I guess one of the points that I didn't make that I should make is that you know what you did was much more courageous than certainly what I do, um, which is that like you were a resident and you started a podcast and you really um, you 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 persisted doing it in years where or months where you know not a lot of people listened, and I guess for better or worse, when I started. I was at least known through Twitter. So like the first episode got some bolus of people. I think a couple thousand, several thousands of people listened to the first episode. Um, that's easier to do than what you did, which was you took something from literally the first grain of sand and made a pearl out of it. Um, you know, you really did that hard work. And so I think you deserve a lot of kudos for that. I think the second thing you do that's better than a lot of other people is um, not better, but it's a different art and I appreciate it, which is that you spend a lot of time on the back um, you know, doing that hard work so that the product is a really nice polished product. And, and, and then the other thing that I really admire about you is that 
you're doing this and I, and everything you told me, you keep coming back to, you know, if, if, if I were being interviewed about a podcast, I wouldn't say the word education as much as you're saying it, you know, for you, education is a core pillar of what you're about. Isn't um, that what you're about? Though? No, I don't I, think so. No, I, I, I'm about, no. I'm about, no, that's not, I mean, I, I hope that people, some people will learn, but that's not my, I don't know. I don't view myself in that way. I'm an, I'm a person with strong opinions and, and, and whether or not you like him or not, at least I have my own goddamn opinions and there's nothing I despise <laughs> more in life than somebody who has no opinions. And I think oh. life is richer. Life is richer when people have opinions, even when we disagree. Um, and that's what I think. I think some of the thing about Twitter that irritates me is I see people arguing endlessly and I'm like, you know what? You can, there are a lot of people on Twitter, they're just regurgitating what they say on CNN. They don't have their own opinion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, I, I want to take the people with opinions, even opinions who I hate and loathe and I argue with and I want to defeat, and I want to at least raise them up one to be like, at least this person's got the guts to go out there and say what they think. And so I respect that. Um, okay, so anyway, that's one of my biases. So anyway, I, I, don't, I don't know how much of this is educational. Maybe the journal clubs are to some degree, but certainly not the, the dialogue. I mean, I don't know. That's for others to decide. But that's not how I would couch it. Um, I would couch it in a different way. But you are an education guy, you're a history guy, epistemology. It's the best place to be. Um, and and I think um, you know, folks should check out bedside rounds. I'll let you get the you get the last thoughts. What do you I get the last yeah. okay. Well, what I one thing that I will say, this is gonna be my, my self-promotion, is yeah. that uh, I'm at my initiative and Treya Trevetti, I should say. We run it together at Beth Israel. We're having a national conference. Um, there's gonna be an in-person one in November. We had to cancel the first in-person one because of COVID. So January 22nd, uh, there you can join us for our national conference. I want to uh, come. I, you want to come? Let me give you the address. I was going to be responsible and have this, but of course I messed it up. If you want to listen to this, you got to Google Harvard Digital Education colon Twitter Podcast Visuals and Beyond. I bet if you Google that, you're going to find it. Yeah, that's the first thing that comes. Digital Education colon Twitter Podcast Visuals and Beyond. Yeah, and the, the whole idea of this conference and the national conference in general, like, one, it's got skill sessions, right? Because I want more people to be, you know, people who are creative, people who have great ideas, I want them to get them out there. But we're also going to go over, like, how you build this into your career as a medical educator. Um, basically, good. I want there more people, like, the more people, the better, right? Yeah. If you want to make an impact, you know, people make the joke, like, what if the I, I'm thinking about starting a podcast, and haha, everyone has a podcast. But quite frankly, if you want people to listen to your stuff in medicine in the year 20. 20 to 2021 make a podcast make a youtube channel those are the ways you do it well i've tried the youtube channel i'm failing on that but i guess jeremy setnar gave me a magnet when i made a podcast and it says i couldn't afford a therapist so i made a podcast <laughs> <laughs> well it's just you uh mostly well sometimes talking to other people but what do you uh actually i have a serious question for you do you have a photo that you look at of another person when you're uh, doing your monologues no i just um uh, so how I actually do the monologue, I, I read the article and I open up a Word document. And the Word document, I, I just uh, use the bullet point list. And I type in one. The first thing I usually look for is the medical writer because I always say his medical writer really annoys me. It's, I think it's absolutely un – why are we allowing medical writers? This is the academy. Okay, so that's my first. And then I go through – I want to. I always want to just say like I have five points. So I just type that up. And then when I go do it, I, I um, use the bullet points to remind me. But I, I And then I just rant. Um, but no, I should have a picture to motivate my anger. No, but yeah. That's actually what a lot of people do. They uh, Like the NPR journalists, when they record their, uh, their solos, will have a photo that they talk to as if they're talking to another person. Really? That's, that's the advice that I give people. Because a lot of people, when they do monologues, sound very stilted so that's always my advice well you know i was trying for years just between us and i guess i could put this out there but um when i first launched the podcast one of the things that delayed me was i didn't want to be a solo host i wanted a co-host and the podcasts i really like 
the the dynamic is typically there is a more opinionated, um, stronger um, viewpoint, and then there's a more um, not I, I want to say sympathetic viewpoint. They agree often, but the other viewpoint is more moderate, more centrist. Um, and I really wanted to get that centrist because I don't think I represent the centrist. Um, I'm slightly, <laughs> you know, I have my own view. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking political dimensions, but you know, the access. Yeah, of no, med- I know, right. what, I yeah. know what you mean. So I wanted a straight, a, like a straight, uh, sober, uh, centrist kind of anchor, and I just couldn't. And I, I and also somebody kind of articulate and, and willing to, you know, to to speak to convey information, which I think is something we don't teach people, which is like to speak to hold someone's attention and talk succinctly yes. and yeah right that's the biggest thing that people don't get taught but anyway i wanted to find this person but i couldn't find anyone to do it and i and i think had i done it the my show would be more popular of course because i think that balance is what people like when they listen to other shows that's what i like my grievance about boards course is this everyone is so pissed off that they don't have their number and they're all pissed off about all these other things but I think the, the root of the issue is the way you pay the specialties. If you stop paying these specialties so much damn money, overnight you will change what people want to do. Nobody wants to do some of these specialties that are making both. They're only doing it for the lifestyle and the money. You change the reimbursement to what we want in society, and, you will, and then you'll solve all the problems. You won't need to rank these students to the, the umpteenth degree. You won't need to fight because there's plenty of IM spots. There's plenty of PED spots. There's plenty of family spots. Yeah. And that's what we need in society. And all of that stuff, yeah, that perspective is skewed medical education research. It's totally uh, because, true. yeah. Um, oh, and, and a lot of the products out there, right? Because they're all about getting better on your step scores. And I don't think those are the things that make a good, uh, like, practicing physician for their career, right? Those don't matter. And not, yes, I agree with you. Not only do they make it bad to be a doctor, but um, there are many people so hell-bent on some of these specialties, they never take the time to learn the skills of the consummate internist because they don't need it in their career. I mean, they're really a a technical expert in some very narrow niche. Um, It irritates me to no end because unless you learn those skills, you're missing part of the tradition that goes back thousands of years of being right. a doctor. Exactly. And, and those things are not things that can be tested. This is what we were talking about yeah. earlier. Like, this is not something that can be tested with knowledge transfer. In fact, I don't know that there is a good way to test it. We don't even know. We, <laughs> we don't even know. Really but you know, know what it is. Adam Sifu likes to say that, like, the gold standard for how to evaluate this is you got to take people who are practicing interns for a long time, who people respect and admire, somebody like an Adam, and you got to pay them enough money that they can go and sit on Adam Rodman's shoulder yeah, when he's yeah, a medical yeah. student and go in the room for an hour. Or two. We don't do that at all. We do these SPs, this nonsense. Like we, we don't get at the thing in itself because we don't want to invest in it. We, we got all the money and we're shirt, skirting it to some lab that's sequencing people's fingernail clippings. I mean, it's I a, um, oh my goodness, yeah. I can't remember. It's named after some World War II general, but like you can't measure it, so it doesn't matter, right? Our um, system. The, um, it's uh, the, oh, uh, oh my, McNamara fallacy, McNamara fallacy. McNamara, there we McNamara, go. McNamara, the, the yeah. Vietnam, Vietnam War. War. Oh, Vietnam, all all not, that not matters is what can be measured, the McNamara fallacy, yeah. Yeah, and, and this is, like, honestly, this is, this is me getting very postmodern for a second, right? But if you think about what, like, obviously this quantifying society, quantifying medicine has given us lots of good things. Yeah. Um, our society is in general better for our ability to quantify and make decisions over large groups of things. But that doesn't mean everything can or should be quantified. And I feel like a stodgy old person just saying that. Well, you know, last thing I'll say is I was listening to some discussion because um, I think Adam Sifu told, tweeted it out. It was about 
race-based GFR and whether or not yeah, that yeah, is yeah. problematic. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the more I, and it made me read about GFR and the more I read about it, I'm like, this is a false quantification. This yes, is, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. so fucking off. Just, just color coded red, orange, and green and, and, and all this nonsense. We don't need to be putting it down to like the one, this is such a false, a false precision. Have you heard of bright? Exactly, false precision. So this is, I, I have like a little Rodman's laws and yeah. my uh, Rodman laws number two is that just because you can put a number on it does not make it scientific. Yes, uh, that's good. Have you heard of Bright's disease before? No, what's Bright's disease? So Bright's disease is, uh, up until like the 1960s, was chronic kidney disease, right? Uh-huh. We talked. We, we only talked about pathologic changes and we great staged them based on the damage seen to the glomerulus and it was called Bright's diseases and different subtypes of that. And it's only when we developed the ability to assay the creatinine that we started to redefine everything in terms of uh, GFR and then we start to make really important decisions based on this well that's and also like, problematic I bet if you did most of those decisions if they were randomized they would find that these cutoffs do no they're no good oh exactly yet. oh exactly I mean it's, it's dichotomania I mean dichotomania, dichotomania. Yeah. But, you know, I, oh. the one thing it does tell me is that um, I finally start to understand why when we do things like high-dose methotrexate in the hospital and we're like, we often have, often things don't go as we anticipate. Now I'm starting to see behind the curtain uh, why uh, these issues happen. Well, I, I, this is why I think a historical perspective is really helpful yeah. because we, like when I was a student, I was like, oh yeah, there's really well thought out reasons that this is, this is what we do. But when you start to dig a little deeper and you can see this transition point and you can also see how GFR was like, uh, CKD was a disease for a, for a therapy, right? We invented this new disease called CKD because of the existence of dialysis. Um, and you can start to see how these contingent, contingent decisions were made that are now because we accept them as, as like a, a commandment, right? That we're having negative downstream effects. Yeah, I did see something that was like, if you change the GFR in such a way, you know, X many more people would get nephrology referrals. And I was like, and the authors just took for granted that that was going to be a good thing. And I was like, I don't know if, I don't know if you're going to be, like, if you don't require dialysis, going to the nephrologist is going to be some wonder drug. What are they going to give you? Blood pressure control and diabetes control and, and some, and some. SGLT2 uh, inhibitors? Yeah, right. Uh, some, well, of course, that's got better data than most, but then they give right. you some uh, uh, phosphate binders and things like that. And uh, who knows? Well, anyway. Uh, uh, it's a it's a it's a thoughtful thoughtful discussion adam and folks should check out your podcast if they, if they've listened this far in the episode because i have a high <laughs> yeah, attrition rate. we talked a very long time this is like three times as long as a normal episode <laughs> this is like half my episode but you know i'm i'm shifting no i know it's a pleasure to have you adam you've been listening to season three of plenary session plenary session is produced by kiana klosner Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.